What can software makers learn from Adidas? How does quality control work in the shoe business? What's a recall for a physical product like? These are some of the questions I asked quality and compliance expert Norbert Teston, former director of compliance excellence for Adidas, the international athletic wear behemoth. Norbert is now the president and principal consultant of NT Creative and Consulting, working with COOs and heads of operations to eliminate the fear and risk of product recalls. Norbert talks about how he got to Vietnam, how he started in the footwear business, what it's like to be in a factory with 20,000 people, and how you create a culture of quality excellence on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Norbert, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So um, I'm, I have no experience in manufacturing, and I know you have a lot. And I'm very interested in having a conversation about the overlap between quality processes and um, in manufacturing and how those might be applied in software. So uh, to get started, I want you to tell me a little bit about your history at Adidas and as a what you did there and, and sort of how your career went. Yeah, sure. So um, I actually started for the company back in 97 mm-hmm. uh, in the sourcing office over in Vietnam. So mm-hmm. I was responsible back then to set up the testing laboratories over in um, that sourcing market. So mm-hmm. a lot of the, they were building up the, the sourcing organization over in Vietnam. And so I was responsible for building all of the lab facilities in the office, but also in the factories. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what I did for a few years. And then I kind of moved on from there, went into the headquarters, was responsible for standards, responsible for um, test methods and bigger plans as well that we had on the QA side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got involved eventually into product safety, compliance of products, um, larger programs, market compliance that we had with China, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, up to the last five years where I was then, my team and I were working on the entire framework of um, quality and compliance for the organization. So let me, let me, first of all, there's a lot in there. That's obviously a lot of, a lot there of, is. Yeah, a lot of different stuff. <laughs> so let me dig into the work you did in Vietnam. You, you said that you're in a laboratory. So I'm assuming, are the shoes being assembled in Vietnam? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So all, most of your, most of your raw material come from the area, mm-hmm. um, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Some of the leathers would come from South America. Mm-hmm. Argentina was a big producer, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the local materials, like the synthetics, mm-hmm. all of the outsole and midsole mm-hmm. material, the mm-hmm. rubbers, mm-hmm. The, the polymers that was all coming locally, either from Vietnam or China, mm-hmm. or Taiwan and Korea. Those mm-hmm. were the, like the big producing countries. And then the assembly itself. Mm-hmm was done in, in Vietnam. And so when the, when the you get a, I'm going to call it a part, that may not be the right uh, term, but let's say you get a sole, or you use your lab testing the quality of that sole or the material or what is what is happening in that lab? Correct, mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. So for, for every, every new supplier, mm-hmm. so material supplier that mm-hmm. would be mm-hmm. um, onboarded and considered for use, we mm-hmm. would do a, a bunch of approval tests mm-hmm. um, just to, to release that materials. But then at the material level, we would take every, uh, every type of material, run it through the lab. Uh, we had a set of standards that we wanted to follow internally. Mm-hmm. So all these materials would be assessed mm-hmm. and then officially released in the system mm-hmm. for use by the developers in the factories. Mm-hmm. So yeah, everything would be pre-approved during the, the, the creation process, mm-hmm. but also during production, they mm-hmm. would have inbound checks mm-hmm. at the warehouse, mm-hmm. at the factory warehouse itself. So when I'm, when I'm designing a shoe, can I blue sky it and like imagine a material exists and then like, okay, I'm going to write a sort of, I don't know if a spec is the right term, but I'll write a spec for what this is supposed to do. And then it's up to procurement to find a material. Yeah. So there is actually, um, 
we had different functions within the organization. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. have a, we had a, an entire designer groups. Mm-hmm. So they would come up with a, well, actually it started even before that. Mm-hmm. There was a business unit mm-hmm. that was determining the need and the briefs. Mm-hmm. So they would kind of describe what they were looking for, for the next range. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the next season. Mm-hmm. So they would work season by season, yeah. right? Usually we used to have four seasons a year, mm-hmm. and then they switched to two seasons after a while. But so the the, the business unit would just determine the need mm-hmm. and put a brief together, mm-hmm. and then the design would come in and start drafting ideas for designs mm-hmm. and types of materials and textures and colors and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then your development team would go in and start looking at, okay, what are the materials we have in our library? Mm-hmm. Because they had it all predefined, mm-hmm. like what suppliers mm-hmm. do I need to look for a new supplier for those types of materials? Mm-hmm. And then they would start the sampling rounds. Mm-hmm. So based on this, they would work with the factories mm-hmm. um, over in Asia to start putting a couple of samples together. And then it's and then it became kind of a, a cycle afterwards. So they would have different rounds of reviews mm-hmm. of those samples mm-hmm. until it gets confirmed for for production and for the season basically so from start to finish how long does it take to make a shoe uh, so the the development phase is the longest one mm-hmm. and that's what companies have been chasing after mm-hmm. the most mm-hmm. i mean it could be 12 12 months to 16 months and then if you have innovation it's you're working like five years ahead mm-hmm of what's going to get in the market. Mm-hmm. But then in terms of the manufacturing, so mm-hmm. once everything is defined, your specs are all in order, mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're going to do mm-hmm. just to assemble the shoe. Um, that could be done in a, in a few days, mm-hmm. but there's between 250 and 350 operations, manual operations that need to happen right. to put one pair of footwear together. Mm-hmm. And, and we're talking sportswear, yeah. which tends to be a little more complex because mm-hmm. there are more pieces mm-hmm. To assemble, and, but it's a long process. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, from kind of concept, you said there's, I'm going to call it a marketing group, which may not be right, but there's a, there's a group yeah. that determines what we want to do, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming they're not drawing anything, they're not making pictures. They're saying these are the, you know, there's the Olympics are coming up, or we have a, um, you know, an athlete who we're launching a sh- uh, footwear uh, line with, and so we think the market is interested in these kinds of things. That goes to a designer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that from Correct. that process to the shoe goes in the box is close to two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you if you go look at it, 16 mm-hmm. months, two years, mm-hmm. yeah, they're trying to. There are companies right now mm-hmm. that are trying to really turn this around mm-hmm. in say, six, six or seven months. But, right. it, but for large organizations mm-hmm. where the range is really complex, you have thousands mm-hmm. of different styles of products, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's, it's much better heavier mm. <laughs> so it takes a long a little longer is, yeah. is the uh, so you mentioned a materials library um if i'm a designer and i'm limited to only using things in the pre-existing materials library so i'm only using materials that have been sourced and approved does that cut down the time at all or not really it tends to do mm-hmm. um the challenge that organizations have been facing and and adidas was facing Mm -hmm. is that those material libraries tended to be very um, complex and there was just a lot of entries so it was a constant work to try to clean it up and consolidate it Mm -hmm. because very often when you reach a certain size especially and you're making footwear products like this and and the the business units don't necessarily talk to each other Mm -hmm. in terms of what they want to use in terms of materials Mm -hmm. so you end up with Tons of duplicates or materials that are looking very similar, but are sourced in different areas mm-hmm. and different suppliers. Mm-hmm. And so there was the materials team was constantly trying to maintain that library of materials to make it as effective as possible. Mm-hmm. And the idea is if you consolidate all of that up front, then obviously you're going to be able to negotiate your prices mm-hmm. down the road with those suppliers. Mm-hmm. You have key suppliers. There's more of a strategy that can be established, but that's, that's always been a clear challenge. And from a quality side for us, mm-hmm. Uh, for my group, mm-hmm. it was also very important because it's easier to manage, you know, 500 suppliers rather than 6,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there's um, there's some analogies. I, I just I'm really interested in this, so I'm going to just stop for a moment. There's some analogies related to software. So very large software system has multiple. Mm-hmm. They're they're a little bit like. Um, suppliers and producers because they're writing code all over that complex system and it's there are libraries 
but it's possible that essentially the same thing gets written more than once and mm-hmm. or something very similar gets written more than once and in two different ways by two different uh, teams. And there's debate, I think, within software about whether that's good or bad um, because the speed to delivery in software is so important. Uh, we're con- I- constantly updating. And a lot of the times – uh, software systems will sacrifice quality for speed uh, and sort of like, well, we'll, we'll fix it later. Um, I, I feel like in manufacturing, you don't really have the opportunity to say, if we get it wrong, we'll come back and fix it later. Is that accurate? That is pretty accurate. Once your product is made, it's made. It's mm-hmm. in the boat. Mm-hmm. And your only opportunity, I mean, might be able to repair some of it, mm-hmm. but it's very limited cases mm-hmm. where you can actually get into the product. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening, the, the times when you have to repair it, the cost of the repair is ginormous, mm-hmm. simply because you have to go in the container itself, open all the shoe boxes, you know, unpack everything. Do you set up a line to clean or do whatever is needed to be repaired and then repack everything? Mm-hmm. And so it's the, 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 just the, the sheer amount of administration or like small manipulation mm-hmm. that needs to be done mm-hmm. is, is hyper expensive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a- so, so, so there's a big philosophy mm-hmm. around right first time mm-hmm. in that industry as well, mm-hmm. trying to educate all these people that it's better to spend one more second to actually do the right thing rather than ship it down the line as, as quickly as possible and having to repair and, and, and correct everything mm-hmm. after that. So how, how yeah. do you establish um, – talk to me a little bit about the establishment of a quality process. And uh, so it sounds like – anyway, I'll, I'll just stop there. Tell me a little bit about how you establish a quality process. So I think it's it's about looking at um, – well, the, first, the first thing is probably looking at uh, what you, as a company – what you're shooting for in terms of vision, mission, purpose. Like, what do you want to stand for? Mm. Because every standard that you're going to set up in the organization later on needs to service that mission and vision and purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you want your product to do certain things towards your consumer. Mm -hmm. You want want your product to be fulfilling that consumer expectation. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, a very big starting point that companies tend to not look at mm-hmm. um and so that gives you your first step and then the idea then is to look at your entire process and to say where are the toll gates that i need to to check throughout that process mm-hmm. to make sure that i keep it as consistent and sustainable as possible so you want to eliminate variation mm-hmm. that's that's the idea mm-hmm. right you want to create a process whether it's during the development phase or during your, your production phase, your manufacturing phase, you want to have as as smaller variations as possible, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be if your manufacturing process has ten steps, okay, great, that's that's fairly easy, mm-hmm. but things can go wrong in any of those ten steps. So the question is understanding where all those variations potentially happening, mm-hmm. and then putting systems in place to minimize those variation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the that's the basic foundation of it, if you want. That, that's mm-hmm. that's very helpful. So you you mentioned at the beginning that an organization often skips the connection between quality and mission. Um, why is that? I think because very often quality and compliance as mm-hmm. as product mm-hmm. um, are just afterthoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to think in terms of, oh, I want to create this product, I want to make this, I want to sell that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, every one of those products is a reflection of who you are as an organization and what you want to portray. Mm-hmm. And you need to make sure that it, you define those functions of that product and you ensure that they're going to consistently be there. And the only way to do that is to have a strong quality system in place in your organization. Um, So in manufacturing, um, do people check their own work or do you tend to have somebody else check what somebody did? It's, it's a bit of a combination. Mm -hmm. So we had, um, in the apparel and footwear mm-hmm. industry, primarily, there's 
also a lot of training that happens around self-awareness mm-hmm. of quality systems. So making sure that as, as a person on the line who does this little operation mm-hmm. within this 250 steps, mm-hmm. uh, you're aware of what's acceptable and not acceptable. Mm-hmm. But then also there's usually... Uh, a supervisor or some sort of audit that happens within the organization. And then sometimes there are layers of audits above this as well mm-hmm. with external institution, external organization that may come in and audit your work. And, mm-hmm. um, and then there's, there's like steps at the end. So for example, you may have uh, during the production line, um, a stitching operations that gets checked by the employee, then the line supervisor may do some checks mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Then at the end of the line, you may have another check, and then you have another check at final inspection. Mm-hmm. So there could be some redundancy. The, uh, the the objective here is to try to eliminate as to make that process as as light as possible, and and to empower the employees who are actually doing the work to make sure that they control and they do things right the first time. Interesting. So if I understand that right, it's like the the culture is built around the person being responsible for their own work, but there are checks Correct. along the line, not just one, but like yeah. maybe five or six checks along the line. And yeah. then if, if yeah. a defect is discovered, who's responsible for fixing it? So it would go back to there are processes. So if you actually walk down mm-hmm. a production line, mm-hmm. so just imagine being in one of those mm-hmm. factories mm-hmm. and they are entire, like they're as big as towns. I mm-hmm. mean, some of those Good factories Lord. are 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you walk down those lines that are gigantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so your main line runs your production and then coming out of the line, sometimes product is being taken out mm-hmm. and then sent back mm-hmm. to be repaired or reprocessed for specific operations mm-hmm. because a defect has been found mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. It, there's a little stain mm-hmm. or the stitches is not right or it's just taken completely out of the production because it cannot be repaired as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a rework, so, uh, kind of a loop that happens along each of the production. And, and that's what actually triggers your cost mm-hmm. as well. So that's what you really want to minimize because visually you can see mm-hmm. what's the cost of your employees and your teams to not do a quality product right from the first time. Yeah, so that, mm-hmm. that's... Um... I'm going to go back to software for a second. So I love, I want to hear, um, give you a chance to think while I talk. Um, I want to hear a story about what it's like being inside a factory with 20,000 people. Um, oh. That sounds just absolutely unworldly. Um, and so in software, you can't really see what the person, what somebody else working on the system is doing. You accept right. the work that they do. It comes back to you as like a, a chunk of code and then you kind of plug it into what you're doing, or you just you don't even plug it in. You just access it remotely. And so the idea of like I can at a shoe, I can look at a shoe and I can see, you know, do the eyelets align? You know, and it's, like, right. it's like pretty. Yeah, um, there's a lot of visual checks. Right, there's visual yes. checks. There are none in software. You know, this is like oh, it works on yeah. my box. Is a you know sort of the typical joke about like well when I it worked for me when I ran it. I don't know why it doesn't work for you. Um, so it feels like there are. Challenges of finding the invisible problems. How did you get? I'm sure there are invisible problems in a manufacturing process too. How did you guys find those? There are. And um, <laughs> so if you think about sizing, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. so in footwear, mm-hmm. this is something that you can't see along the line. Mm-hmm. If, if there's a small deviation in your pattern mm-hmm. making, in your stitching, mm-hmm. in your assembly, etc., those can all accumulate and then create a problem from a fitting perspective, mm-hmm. right? Where your volume mm-hmm. in the toolbox becomes suddenly a lot smaller. Uh, your materials have been rotating. You don't have the stretch anymore. Um, it, there's tons of reasons that can accumulate and create a fit issue. And you're not necessarily going to see this until the product's on the market, mm-hmm. unless you have a quick fit check that's being done um, before the product actually leaves the factory. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are some invisible problems. Mm-hmm. What we t- what we what I recommend in those situations is you've got to build a learning process over. Um, Okay. Hold on, let me close my door. Got there. Is that okay? Yeah, sure, you're fine. 
Do you, do you want me to turn yeah, no, it? No, you're good. It's, it's okay. It's my vacuum. It's, that <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of cute. It's like Christmas season. Was, yeah, it's fine. I was like, I'm sure everything should be fine. Yeah, so yeah. Of course, the vacuum turns on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. It's great. So there you go. Um, so yeah, so... so so what I would recommend organizations mm. is, is is to implement some sort of feedback loop on a regular basis, mm. like any experience that you may have going forward, whether there's been a defect that hasn't been perceived during the manufacturing phase, mm. then think of what can I put in place early enough that would catch that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had, we went through so many iterations with Adidas over the, the 25 years that I was there mm-hmm. that every time there was a major issue, we would think in terms of, okay, how do we set up something throughout the entire process that would help us at least highlight the p- potentiality of an issue mm-hmm. and then take care of it in the right time so we don't have to... Um, so we don't have to end up in the same situation. That's really interesting. So if I understand that right, it's a little bit like a risk management process in manufacturing. So when you're, is that reasonable to think about? We're mm-hmm. trying to identify what all the possible risks are and what the likelihood of their Cut. of them happening. Um, yeah. How do you do that? I mean, like it's that feels almost like a philosophical exercise of like trying to understand what are all the possible things that could go wrong. So I think a lot of it is is experience. Um, we had um, it's interesting. So my my boss was was an expert in shoe manufacturing. Like they were shoe dogs. That that's what they were called. Mm-hmm. But those those that <clears throat> an entire generation of people who had been trained to be uh, extremely precise about shoe manufacturing, mm-hmm. and so. And then we had pattern experts, we had mold experts, we had a whole list of expertise internally. And so a lot of the, 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 the work was about trying to understand the root cause of all of these situations, right? Mm-hmm. Because you see the problem at the end, and it can come from a whole bunch of different root, root, uh, reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so doing a, a, a root cause analysis asking why, reaching out to different people, evaluating scenarios. Um, and then the teams would start to get really good at doing a full investigations of those situations. Mm-hmm. And once we knew exactly what that root cause is, then we would go back and try to set up the system to make sure that we would catch that going forward. So that, that feels like it requires uh, a culture that's willing to stop. So to, to say, you know, we can't, We've discovered a significant flaw in our manufacturing process. We have to stop manufacturing until we get this fixed. Could Adidas ever do that? I would think the place, you know, the, the sky would fall if somebody said we need to turn off the line. So um, believe it or not, the production managers and senior managers, so, mm-hmm. so we had Adidas people, mm-hmm. and, and Nike has the same, mm-hmm. all these brands mm-hmm. tend to have the same. They have dedicated Adidas responsible personnel that is on the line in the factory Mm -hmm. and is responsible for managing production. And one of their authorities was to stop the line. Mm -hmm. They were able to say, no, 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 no. What we're going, what's going through right now is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. We need to stop the line, fix the problem and rerun it. Mm -hmm. So there was a first round Mm -hmm. of kind of that that catching Mm -hmm. of issues Mm -hmm. that would happen right there on the line. And we would not, I would not see it from a headquarter perspective Mm -hmm. because they'd be caught so early in the process. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But that authority existed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Definitely. It's, it's kind of a scary thing to do because the factories who were all, they were not Adidas' own factory. They were subcontractors. Oh, and so they would flip out every time something like this was happening because it's so much money that right. goes out the window when yeah. you have to hold the line. Right. You get a bunch mm-hmm. of early employees standing around. Oh, yes, gosh. absolutely. I mean, but um, yeah. so what, what was it uh, when you got to Adidas and for between the 25 years that you were there, did you see their culture of quality change at all or did you kind of come into a situation where quality was very important i don't think i saw the uh the 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 size of the organization just changed so much that we it's the approach around quality that was different in a way that um 
when I started, it was more related to the individual, the idea of craftsmanship. Um, it was, it was, um, it was a, a great inheritance from the founder himself, mm-hmm. Adolf Dassler, mm-hmm. um, that has like carried itself over years after year. I think the more the company started to grow, the more we had to make quality kind of an institution within the organization. Mm-hmm. So they had we had um, quality values that were defined, and there were. Um, Quality was was always on the board of high level projects as well for the organization. Mm-hmm. So it kind of shifted in terms of that. Um, like it, it, it wasn't necessarily considered as a as a as a craftsmanship kind of concept, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it was still very present. But it had to be present in a very different way, just because the organization was a complete different size. Yeah, and and I must does that make sense? Yeah, it does make total sense. Yeah. So it also sounds like when Adolf started the business, there weren't that many people. He was sourcing and he was manufacturing in a you know limited area. And then yeah. now you've got shoot factories in Vietnam and factories in South America, and uh, right. suddenly it's it's a little hard to have the exact same culture in both places. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Those challenges of international business. Um, what, when you, if you were giving advising a company that was ex- thinking about expanding into another country, um, uh, I know that's not exactly your area of expertise, but based upon your um, your experience, what would you tell them? Um, I'll tell them get your butt over there. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be my yeah. first recommendation. Yeah. Is like. Mm-hmm. Don't ever think that you're never going to have to fly over mm. to, to see mm. and, and interact with people because mm. um, I was lucky enough to, I was actually already in Vietnam mm. when they were looking for people and hiring people on site. Mm-hmm. And so I got hired directly mm. from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But what I understood very quickly is that I had to show my face. Mm-hmm. Like they, there's, uh, there's something very human about and, and very powerful about connecting with people face to face and being there in in to to tackle conversations and difficult situations as well mm-hmm. and and you cannot do proper sourcing if you don't know who you're dealing with mm-hmm. and there's a extremely high risk of having things get completely wrong and I actually was a con- on a conversation two weeks ago with a lady and, and she was working with a small brand and they had done their sourcing they haven't checked their POs before it shipped out their partner wasn't very solid and they ended up with all of their product being lower quality and so now they have tons of returns and there's additional cost and mm-hmm. and it, it might actually sink the brand mm-hmm. um, so you, you, you cannot underestimate the power of just going physically there, staying for a couple of weeks to really understand who your partners are, mm-hmm. and then also making sure that whatever comes off the line is what you expect it to be. Mm-hmm. Because culturally, there is such a gap, especially with Asia, mm-hmm. um, of understanding of what products quality is supposed to be and even understanding your own philosophy of product quality what do you expect them to be following and those can all be clarified once you have face-to-face conversations um and so that's that's what i was trying to do when i was in vietnam the very first years i would be out they would send us to the factory all the time like we would get out to talk to the factories be there with them help them with their machines so on the lab side i would go and work with the lab managers of each of those factories, help mm-hmm. them with the test methods, the machinery, et cetera, talk mm-hmm. to their management, mm-hmm. talk to go through the line, see what's happening on the line just to get familiar. And then they get familiar with us as well. Because one of the things you absolutely want is if there is an issue, mm-hmm. you want them to call you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You want to make, you want them to be comfortable enough with you that they'll pick up the phone and say, we're having an issue here. We need to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. you have to build, it's like you're saying, you have to build equity into that relationship so you can have a difficult, you're going to have a hard right. conversation at some point. It's, you know, there's yeah. just too many variables for everything to go perfectly the first time. Um, and you need a relationship for them to be able to do that. So I have worked with offshore development teams writing software offshore, 
And one of the things that was really difficult about working with those groups is you never had, or at least I'll speak for myself, I never had any idea what they were doing. I knew what we had, what I had assigned them. Right. I knew what we asked them to do, but it was very hard to tell what they were actually doing. And I always had to take the word of the onshore developers about what the offshore developers were doing. And when something went wrong, whose fault was it? How did it happen? Et cetera. And it was always the offshore guys. They yeah. were always dummies. Um, of course. <laughs> and, right, right. And so, I mean, I, I feel like in manufacturing, there's opportunity for the same sort of he said, she said kind of situation. As somebody in quality, how would you um, find the truth? So sometimes you don't find it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. you suspect it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes you kind of have to like close a chapter, mm -hmm. being like, mm -hmm. okay, well, 50 50 this time, <laughs> but we'll keep an eye on you. Um, <laughs> I mean, that happened as yeah. well, unfortunately. Um, again, I think it went back. There's generally a pattern. That's, that's also something that's important. Um, your best partners in sourcing um, are really, uh, again, they'll have a different attitude around the problem. They'll reach out to you early enough. You'll have the opportunity to kind of gather information and really understand what is going on, what do they know, what do they not know. Mm -hmm. um, the, the worst business, the worst sourcing partners, I would say, they'll try to keep stuff away from you. They'll try to hide things away. Mm -hmm. um, and and you'll see, again, you'll see it as a pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to come up again and again and again. So, so we used to have, um, Adidas has a clear management of uh, KPIs mm -hmm. for their suppliers as well, mm -hmm. just to understand, you know, who's, who's repetitively having issues that we are not able to solve mm -hmm. and um, where do we need to focus our attention a little bit more, either to strengthen the relationship mm -hmm. or to address it in a way that, you know, maybe that, that relationship is not going to last very long because we can't really rely on each other. Mm -hmm. We don't seem to align and communicate the right way. Mm -hmm. And so those KPIs, are they similar across all partners? Like are there, is there a core set across all I guess you can do all partners, but across partners in a similar uh, function. Yes, there they used to be. Mm -hmm. It used to be very similar. Mm -hmm. There was, I mean, the 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 main the main KPIs that the company or the footwear based industry is looking at is delivery, um, quality, mm -hmm. um, um, support with innovation, mm -hmm. um, investments, volumes, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a lot of. Time, cost, and quality. Mm -hmm. A lot of it revolves around those three and those three pillars. When you're measuring quality, is there um, how do you do that in a way that avoids opinion? Uh, a lot of it is gathering products. Mm -hmm. So that's the good thing about um, working on consumer goods mm -hmm. as well as mm -hmm. you can actually mm -hmm. gather a product mm -hmm. and clearly show mm -hmm. yes or no, this is a problem, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then start documenting it mm -hmm. so then it becomes more of an educational tool. Mm -hmm. um, this, this, So we would have, and that's also something I'd recommend companies to start with mm -hmm. is what are the problems you're facing with your consumers right now? Mm -hmm. Like what are the problematic products that you've sent to the market mm -hmm. and, and then start a root cause analysis of these so that you can understand where that problem is coming from. Um, did, um, did Adidas in your time there ever have uh, a product that went out and then you started to get complaints from consumers about like something pretty bad was happening? Yes. How'd you handle it? We did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me that story if you can from sort of start to finish these were not yeah. not the fun times for sure um because it's kind of an escalation so yeah. so it, it, you know it's it's a bit of a trauma every time and you're like yeah. oh lord i hope this is not a recall because this is gonna hurt mm -hmm. and of course i mean management just again mm -hmm. it just runs around mm -hmm. and and very often um, what we were trying to do is to kind of tame down the people 
the people first mm-hmm. to be like, just don't, let's not panic. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet what's going on. Something came back to us mm-hmm. through a certain source. Mm-hmm. We know there's a problem. Let us investigate. Is this a serious issue? How many products have been re, mm-hmm. uh, returned for these reasons? Mm-hmm. What kind of reasons are there? Is there a product safety concern related to it? Are we eventually considering a recall? Let's gather, you know, our, our purchase order list mm-hmm. to know how many have we produced? Where have they been produced? What factories? Um, do we have any former examples that relate to the same type of issue? So there's, there was a whole investigation phase, mm-hmm. really, that would allow us to evaluate kind of the level of issue that we were dealing with the lowest would be okay this is something easy maybe the consumer's not you know it won't be perceived by the consumer it doesn't have an impact mm-hmm. we can just let it go and fix the production going forward to no this is a major problem there's potentially a, a safety issue for the person wearing it we need to recall that product completely so that needs pull it back from all the shelves around the entire world mm-hmm. and that has happened too and those Yes, those would be generally a month or so of just focusing on this. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so in that yeah, yeah. situation, I'm assuming that happens. God willing, that happens in one tight one shoe, not in like a yes. line of shoes. It happens in one shoe, and so manufacturing goes on around the rest of the organization for everything else. If you have a recall in a shoe, it doesn't mean you stop making sweatpants. Um, That's correct, um, and. But that particular area is totally focused on um, pulling it back and trying. Yeah. You know, because and, because the, the the so the the, the footwear and apparel industry mm-hmm. your, your runs are. I was going to say fairly short. Mm-hmm. Like you're not making a car that's going to run on your production line for two or three mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of products mm-hmm. that were like all the original stuff, mm-hmm. like products that were here for a long time, mm-hmm. those would be running for years at a time mm-hmm. and the evergreen type of product. Mm-hmm. But most of the range was actually produced for a specific season, for a campaign, mm-hmm. there was color related to it, etc. Mm-hmm. So generally, by the time you actually deal with the issue, the production is done. Mm-hmm. Like your, your purchase orders have all been fulfilled and the product is either on the boat mm-hmm. or it's already in the market. Mm-hmm. Unless it was like a brand new technology, for example, something Mm -hmm. that had a specific function that needed to be fulfilled and that function was failing Mm -hmm. or the technology itself was failing. Mm -hmm. And then you you knew that you were in big trouble because… Because that means there's more products that are waiting to be produced, and those need to be fixed as well. Yeah, because you're not using that technology yeah. just in one product in one shoe. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So everything that would go across the range, mm-hmm. those would be the major, the very worrying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> issues. Yeah, that would be scary. Um, do you do so? If you're doing a, do you do a limited run of shoes just to make sure that it's like let's let's just manufacture. Five shoes or whatever, you know, ten, one in every size to make sure that they look that they're okay. Or do you just hit the button? You're like, nope, hundred thousand, hundred thousand shoes coming down the line. So it depends on the it mm-hmm. depends mm-hmm. on the philosophy mm-hmm. of the organization at that point mm-hmm. and the group that was working on it. Um, I've seen both happening. My preference and inclination and recommendation was always to say, if this is something that's brand new, make a short run, try Mm -hmm. it out. Because as soon as you scale it up in manufacturing, you're going to start facing other issues that you didn't know about, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so there's the idea of, yeah, you need to ramp up your manufacturing and make sure it's ready to support that type of volume and then understand where the variabilities might be during that that scaling up of manufacturing. but but a lot of the range, uh, yeah, vo- volumes vary quite a bit actually between products as well. And so you're you're uh, when you're advising clients, do you typically tell them do a small run? Just make that make it part yes. of your standard process. Is you always do a small run because yeah. there's going to be stuff that's different between that and the prototype that you can't tell until you're doing a run. That's correct. Yeah. And especially everything that's innovation related, because because I mean I 
I um, back about 15 years ago, mm. I worked on a product that was electronic based. So there was a little, there was a little battery. Mm. It was called the Adidas One. Mm. It was a little engine inside the sole that was pulling an elastomer components and making the sole harder or softer. Mm. And it would adjust itself based on your running style. Mm -hmm. As well, and so you could make it harder or softer, mm. but then it would by itself adjust itself. Mm. And so there we go. We're making, we've been making regular footwear, regular footwear, sportswear, mm -hmm. for the past 15, 20 years, maybe. And then suddenly we're introducing electronics inside mm -hmm. a, a piece of footwear that's mm -hmm. going to be worn out in the rain, the cold, mm -hmm. uh, the heat, mm -hmm. etc. And with no knowledge whatsoever internally of how to handle electronics. Mm -hmm. So I actually flew to China and spent two weeks over there mm -hmm. to break down every single process of that electronic components mm -hmm. to make sure we had everything up front checked mm -hmm. so that when production and mass manufacturing comes in, mm -hmm. then we'd be able to at least ensure that whatever we're getting is consistent with what we had uh, taken during development and run all the tests over. Mm -hmm. And then we introduced an additional set of testing, et cetera. But the complexity of just putting this together mm -hmm. was, was, it was a first for all of us. And we actually just set up a new tool mm -hmm. that we then started using for different, uh, for new innovations that were coming up afterwards. So was the, was the but, tool a process tool or was that, tell me a little bit about what Yeah, it was a process tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it was just um, um, Excel files mm -hmm. that we had put together with a specific format yeah. to really kind of align the organization mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. make sure that, okay, what defined for ourselves what's an acceptable like what do we if we get a small component that mm -hmm. goes into that mm -hmm. big mechanics mm -hmm. uh, what what are the approved and defective uh, uh, measurements that we're going to do on that component yeah. how do we say mm -hmm. it's okay to go in or it's not okay to go mm -hmm. in um, and so defining all of this for each of those pieces right. and then um, providing that to the inbound inspection teams as well. So electronics in a shoe, I mean, um, as, as someone who knows nothing about shoe manufacturing, that seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you. Sorry. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry to rain on that innovation, but how did it turn out? Uh, there was two generations of it, yeah. I believe. Two or three generations yeah. that happened. Yeah. Um, it's the problem with mechanics is that they mm. they abrade and they they don't last forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. Is as soon as you have mechanical part um, acting against each other, even if it's metallic, it's going to start abrading. You have corrosion issues. You have so the concept was probably not necessarily a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's what we missed afterwards is the the patient, the time and the investment mm -hmm. to really move it towards something that's a lot more sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's kind of building, you know, like the electric car industry. Oh, it's yeah. like you, you start where you are, you, you run at a loss for a while, and then until you actually push it to a point mm -hmm. where, okay, now mm -hmm. it's becoming something very solid. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we got to that point, unfortunately, with our technology. Do you, uh, so when you guys would investigate a market, like some, someone's thinking, we need a shoe that adjusts to the running style of the runner. We think that'll be a breakthrough technology for us. Do you have like information that says how people decide what sorts of shoes to wear? I, I would think so much of that would just be like, oh, these look cool. But I, I've and or like, oh, I, I like <clears throat> the people who wear Adidas. You know, it just it feels like it's not yeah. a rational decision. So part of it was every business unit, so every marketing group mm -hmm. was organized by sports category, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you had a soccer group mm -hmm. and you had an indoor group, you had an outdoor group, mm -hmm. you had... And so those would be sports-specific and very focused on understanding who that consumer base is mm -hmm. um, to understand their needs mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. What type of product mm -hmm. do we want to create mm -hmm. to help that athlete mm -hmm. Uh, achieve better performance. Mm -hmm. um, so the running group would have connections with running um, professionals and athletes and college athletes, and mm -hmm. um, and they were they would run. Uh, they would be very connected to that community to a point where 
um, they would understand much better what type of product people were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a year actually, which was it was it was a very interesting experience. But back in two thousand eight, I believe. Um, we got approached by our development team and they're like, we're making racing flats and racing flats are basically running shoes that you want to run one or two marathons with. Mm-hmm. They're super light, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they feel like you have nothing on your feet. Mm-hmm. But because of the fact that you're taking off the weight, you're also taking out the durability of the product. Mm-hmm. So after two races, that product is good to throw away, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this was going kind of against all the standards that we had established Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we always wanted to build shoes that would last forever. Um, and so we had to have those very interesting conversations to say, well, what's your client base? What is it marketing marketed as? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we, what kind of standard are we really trying to build here for that specific product? How do we isolate that product in the range so that suddenly not everybody starts using the same constructions mm-hmm. and then retail it as an actual really mm-hmm. running shoe that's going to last forever? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of uh, prevention that needed to happen when we worked on that product, but it turned out great. There was there's a great team collaboration mm-hmm. between the designer team, mm-hmm. the development team, the marketing team, mm-hmm. us as a quality team, mm-hmm. to really try to understand that niche market mm-hmm. and really create a product that would work for mm-hmm. it, knowing that there are some downfalls, mm-hmm. but those downfalls were also being communicated properly to the consumer. Love that. I think um, yeah. what to me what's so fascinating about that story is that it goes all the way back up to what you said at the beginning of the discussion about values, and so Correct. that that um, the the QA manufacturing process, the quality quality process to support that shoe, had to be different than the quality process to support other shoes, uh, because yes. that shoe had a different mission, which was that yes. it was a disposable shoe. By, because yes. customers said, we want a disposable shoe. We like a shoe yeah. that feels great for two races, and then we want that new shoe feeling all the time. Um, yeah. And that runs like sort of counter. Like if you'd said that to Adolf on his bench making a shoe, he'd have been like, you're an idiot. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so it sort of causes you to, to reconsider well, your so- mission. Yeah, so this was really interesting because mm-hmm. actually Adolf on his bench, mm-hmm. because he was so much in control of everything, because mm-hmm. he was the one talking to the athlete, uh-huh. he was the one supervised, he knew how to put shoes together, yeah. he was the one in contact with his production, mm-hmm. and he was the one back with the athletes when the shoe was being yeah. worn and tested. Mm-hmm. And so we, you have tons of pictures of Adolf Dassler sitting together mm-hmm. with athletes mm-hmm. and really trying to understand what does that athlete need? How do we build it? And then once he had the prototype, mm-hmm. trying it out with them right. to really confirm mm-hmm. that the product was doing what it was supposed to do. And and that type of loop, like yeah. that really mm-hmm. end-to-end understanding mm-hmm. of the process and the product and, the, and integrating the customer mm-hmm. into that loop mm-hmm. um, it is critical, I think. I love that. Because that to me, so, so I had made an assumption, which is, turns out is false, is that he didn't start out in the athletic shoe business, but it sounds like he did. He did, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. He was um, very, He was a. He was an athlete, actually, all around athlete. Mm-hmm. He was. He was racing. He was doing high jumps. He was playing soccer. Mm-hmm. Like he. He was doing it all and fascinating by sports, mm-hmm. and so he started developing products for all these categories of sports as well, mm-hmm. and then went into Olympics and yeah. Wow. So that that story about the disposable um, track shoe or marathon shoe um, goes back to the very origins of the company about that collaboration between the designer and the athlete very yeah. closely. You know, I think right mm-hmm. now, back then, it was just the organization was Adolf. Right now, there's there's yeah. a gigantic multinational in between the athlete and the manufacturing process that you kind of, in that case, had to go around because I'm assuming there were there was certain beliefs about what shoes were supposed to be that were pretty ingrained mm-hmm. into the organization. Um, and so I, I love you what you talked about how you kept them separate. Talk to me a little bit about sort of what are those um, – so this is another software problem of how do you manage risk with like new development, new releases? How do you manage risk as it relates to uh, the um, 
the data that you're collecting and maintaining privacy of that data and maintaining the good separation of that data, et cetera. Um, so the idea of like, okay, we, we, for this purpose, we need like a totally separate manufacturing process. Talk to me a little bit about how that happened. So we would um, we would really try to look at it in the end to end, meaning we would start looking at how do we control the supplier, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, the material, the raw material as it being produced. So who are those suppliers? Do we need to talk to them? Do we need to set very specific guidelines for them? Mm-hmm. And then we would look at the manufacture the assembly piece of it. So with our tier ones, what we call our tier one factories, Mm -hmm. so the manufacturers themselves, and do the same exercise. Like how do we, uh, do we need a special line for this kind of products? Do we need to isolate it? How do we isolate? How do we secure it? How does it make sure that it's packed the right way and isolated on the floor too? But then, um, then what we would do as well is once it gets to the market, we would track all of the potential returns. And so we would do weekly or <clears throat> weekly, monthly reports on understanding if the rate of returns for that product uh, based on the type of defects that it was coming back for was actually higher than normal. Mm-hmm. So we would track the performance of the product once it's on the market as well to really make sure that we can pull the trigger if we needed to, to say, hey, we need to hold back. There's a problem. There's something we haven't anticipated. We need to look into it. So we would be under surveillance mode for at least six months to a year mm-hmm. to really make sure that whatever we put in place in advance, mm-hmm. like upfront mm-hmm. in the manufacturing phase, mm-hmm. would be uh, efficient as much as possible. That's re- yeah. that's really interesting because if, if I understand what you're saying, it's like, okay, the disposable shoe and the shoe that lasts forever, they still have a lot of things in common. And mm-hmm. you, so you, you want to understand what are those quality processes for the shoe that's supposed to last forever that we already have lots of measures around those. We want to make sure that the disposable shoe is going to meet all of the appropriate measures is that a reasonable way of looking at it? Yeah, that it's going to have there, there's a common um foundation mm-hmm. that would go for that would work for both, mm-hmm. right? In terms mm-hmm. of standards mm-hmm. and processes and everything mm-hmm. that's on the line, mm-hmm. right? So so we would we would try to assess if whether that common foundation mm-hmm. would be able to be applied for both products mm-hmm. and then we would look at the, the called a disposable shoe. Sorry, we, we would look at that. Spe- <laughs> <laughs> that's that mm. technology. Te- let's call it technology. The technology. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, we would look at that technology mm-hmm. and then see what is very specific about this technology mm-hmm. that we need to tack on mm-hmm. to the existing process mm-hmm. or the existing toll gates or controls that we may have. Um, in the existing process. So we would handle it a little bit as an exception, Mm -hmm. but really would make the upfront work of understanding what those exceptions are about Mm -hmm. and then making sure that we have systems that capture those exceptions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like the electronic shoe, we put this entire plan together that was just for that electronic shoe mm-hmm. that was related to the electronic components. The rest of the standards were still valid, yep. right? Yep. They, they still had to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But then then we shut that down once the once the innovation was scratched from the range. Mm-hmm. We were like, okay, well, we'll keep that on file in case mm-hmm. it comes back. Mm-hmm. But for now, nobody actually needs it. Mm-hmm. It's mm. interesting. So we we do ad hoc ad hoc plans. I get you. Um, like they said. Um, so I want to. Um, Kind of uh, uh, tell me about a day that's fun. What's what's like a day when you're doing what you because you obviously have a lot of interest and passion for what you do. Um, what is it? What does a fun day look like for you? Tackling a big issue that no one knows what's going on. So mm-hmm. it's a big it's a big puzzle. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I do is 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 a lot of puzzling and is a lot of risk management. Um, I'll give you examples mm-hmm. of days mm-hmm. that I've really had fun in the past mm-hmm. is um, I'm thinking of um, China requirements. So China came up with this entire matrix of standards mm-hmm. that we had to fulfill and across our products. So there's codes that you have to pick to understand um, what standards need to be applied and the code has to be on the label and mm-hmm. um, consumers in China are able to basically pick a product from the stores and send it to a third-party lab, get it tested. And if it's not passing those requirements, they're entitled to get a, um, a refund, more than a refund. They're actually... Damages? Um, 
damages, yes, and the company gets fined for like the amount of product times the amount of products that have been actually distributed on the market. So there's there's gigantic incentives for a company to get it right. Mm -hmm. And um, this came up, I don't know why, out of the blue for us, Mm -hmm. and we hadn't heard about Mm -hmm. it, but suddenly someone Mm -hmm. was like, we need to address this issue. So we ended up flying to Shanghai for Mm -hmm. a couple of years. We did that um, on a regular basis to really just understand what this thing is about Mm -hmm. because we had no idea. Mm -hmm. And it was touching everything. That's the challenge. Mm -hmm. It was touching test standards. It was touching labeling, like I said, Mm -hmm. um, factories. And what do we do during development? How do we assign the right codes? And what are those test methods? Do we need to reassess all of our standards? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the current production? What's future production? (laughs) What does it mean for innovation? (laughs) How about if the standard doesn't exist? Let's just go to China. (laughs) I was, I was, we were, I could see Mm -hmm. ourselves, like we had this big group of people that we had gathered Mm -hmm. over in Shanghai Mm -hmm. in office and like, flip charts everywhere on the wall. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is going on Mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. And then until we like started processing it and it became clear in my head, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, I think we've we've got some pieces of it. Mm -hmm. Like we know, Mm -hmm. like we're starting to cluster things Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. and we're starting to understand what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just the beginning of that long journey. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was a major piece. And this is really what I enjoy doing is when we had large challenges like this, that would allow me to go into a complete different world. Mm -hmm. Like I had never been to Shanghai and never connected much with the Shanghai team as well. Mm -hmm. And suddenly Mm -hmm. I was in the middle of these people. Um, and then trying to figure out, talking to the lawyers, talking to mm-hmm. the sourcing team locally, talking to the external labs to understand exactly what is going on with all these new regulations. Um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. I just I just really enjoy I enjoy gen- genuinely connecting with people mm-hmm. and really understanding mm-hmm. what is what's your world looking like mm-hmm. that I don't understand that I need to understand if we want to solve this situation. So there's a ton. That's a great story. Um, there's a ton of different expertise required to build a shoe, it sounds like. Mm. Um, and yes. obviously, you don't have all that expertise. No. But you are in um, – um, I'm going to use a term which may be inappropriate, so feel free to tell me it's inappropriate. You are in some ways like an internal shoe regulator or manufacturing regulator. Yeah. And that means you mm-hmm. have to at least have some understanding – enough understanding to know when people are bullshitting you. Um, yeah. How do you? How did you develop that? Like in that room, it sounds like you're starting. As you say, we're starting to cluster some things, but there's people with very different expertise who probably don't understand anything about yeah. what's on the other guy's flip chart. How do you start to pull that together? Um, a lot of it is for me to kind of understand if it makes sense, and that sounds very simplistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But what I tend to do in my own head is I tend to run through their process mm-hmm. and, and and for myself, mm-hmm. be like, okay, I'm going to put myself in their position and I'm going to try to understand what their process is. And it's something I'm really good at generally mm-hmm. is, is to really run through a process steps mm-hmm. and establish whether there's a hole or a gap or something that's missing there mm-hmm. that could either break the process down or I'm like, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Like, how? Mm-hmm. What's the link between this and that? Mm-hmm. Like, who does what here? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. and how does it happen in what system? Mm-hmm. Right. So I I tend to be very good at mapping this out in my head and then pulling out areas where I'm like, mm, that sounds fishy. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the first time I did that, and I was it was a great exercise. Um, when I started with Adidas in '97, they my boss who then became my boss for 16 years down the road mm. after that he they decided to send me and a couple of other new newcomers to the factory every day for six weeks mm-hmm. and so there we were in vietnam on our motorcycle mm-hmm. one hour motorcycle drive to the factory to sit down on the line mm-hmm. with the workers and the factories back then so we would have a contacts and etc mm-hmm. and they would tell take us through other factory and make us work the actual, all of the different steps mm-hmm. that are coming in mm-hmm. to, to make a shoe. So this allowed me to at least map out in my own head, like these are all the processes that need to happen and that are currently happening to make a, to make an entire product. Mm-hmm. And that have been using this forever since I started. Mm-hmm. Um, because a manufacturing process tends to be 
fairly linear overall, mm -hmm. right? But every one of those little steps can go wrong. Something can happen there. There's always an important criteria to make sure that that single step goes right and is, is as efficient as possible, too. I love that. Um, I'll say software desperately needs you. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> so the, um, there's a, there's a uh, I can't remember who said this, but it's if we built so buildings the way we build software, or every building would fall down within a day. You know, it's just oh like, no, yeah, it's just like um, there's there's um, all sorts of variables in um, you know building software that has a bazillion lines of code. Just like there's 250 steps to make a shoe, um, yeah. there's gazillions of, of, of steps to compile software. Um, and much of it is invisible. Much of that process is invisible. It's either done by machines or it's done in a ways where it's not really shared that well from one group to another. Uh, and yeah. so there's like tolerances. What are your error tolerances that I'm really interested? I also wanted to ask this about Adidas. So um, in software, sometimes it's like, well, it's good enough. You know, it's like, that's close. It's not really going to hurt anybody. Um, so ship it. Because if you spent all of your time fixing everything that was wrong, you'd never ship. It's there's always going to be because mm -hmm. you know when you touch one thing, something it's like a Jenga. You know something, you, something else changes, right? How do you make those decisions about quality in a manufacturing process when it's sort of like ah, it's a little gray? It's like, well, this isn't really what we wanted. Is it going to hurt the consumer? Or I mean, what is what's the criteria that you use? So a lot of it is a risk analysis. Mm -hmm. Yes. A lot of it is understanding what could be the impact going forward, mm -hmm. especially if your product is already there. Mm -hmm. it's, in, it's been packed and it's a container, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, where does that product go? Is this a large production? Mm -hmm. Let's talk to the marketing team mm -hmm. to see, mm -hmm. is the change really relevant for them? Is this going to make it different to the consumer? Mm -hmm. Obviously, if there's a product safety issue, then that needs to be like, hold it, hold the shipment, mm -hmm. and let's do an evaluation. Mm -hmm. Let's evaluate what the risk could be. And then potentially, you know, that risk is major. And then, yeah, the, those product doesn't leave the factory. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about understanding the configuration of the, the issue itself and then where it's going and what could potentially go wrong or what could be the problem if it if it does make it out the door. Mm -hmm. um, I think... And and it's and and a lot of it a lot of it as well is is building that history mm -hmm. after that, right? Because every every issue you face is the potential for a lesson learned yeah. that you then need to integrate back into your your systems, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we would have um, visual requirements, for example, in the manufacturing phase, mm -hmm. where if there are stains or if there are little variation of the stitches or a little defect here and there is like to what extent are we accepting defects what's the tolerance and that would generally come from um, having conversations in the past about things that have been returned or things that have been claimed because consumers didn't accept ex accept this because it's a lot of gray mm -hmm. it's a ton of gray mm -hmm. Right, yeah. it's definitely not a black and white. People want it to be black and white, but it's not. Right. Well, I think <laughs> so. it, it, to me, it goes again. It goes back to what you said. People skip a lot of the times in the beginning. Is what are the values of the organization? And yeah, I, I think that. Um, so while while you and I are talking, there was the whole AI dust up over people leaving. Um, I can't. This is awful. I can't remember the name of this company, but it's the big AI company that built ChatGPT. Open AI, excuse me. Oh, yeah, Open AI. Yeah, yeah. And allegedly, mm -hmm. the, the the dust up between the CEO and the board was over risk, and mm -hmm. we don't know who's on what side. We don't know if you know, uh, but they disagreed about how to manage risk, um, right. and so um, they fired him, and then blah blah blah. Um, but the, I feel like that's an area where software is just awful, awful, awful is understanding risk. And I think one of the reasons why is that we don't have a particularly good history. And when we do look back mm -hmm. on history, we, we tend to answer it by like, ah, technology's changed. That's not a problem anymore. That would only happen back then because the technology is new now. Right. It could never happen again. Yes. And so, I mean, did you ever get that kind of thing in manufacturing where people would say, oh, well, that's not an analogous case because of blah, blah, blah. 
I think that the the difference probably here between the two industries is the fact that uh, footwear hasn't changed that much actually yeah. <laughs> because you still need and that's why it's all produced in asia mm. i mean if you were to produce a pair of shoes uh, in the u.s or in europe mm. you'd have to pay two thousand dollars for that pair of shoes right because it's so much human driven and they've been to all these brands have been trying to automate the process as much as possible but basically, the process remains very much the same as it was 20 years ago. Um, there hasn't been any gigantic breakthrough. And I think that's different from the IT industry mm-hmm. where your platforms, your programming languages change. And then all suddenly, time. you know, that all the time, mm-hmm. right? And so it moves at such a pace mm-hmm. in terms of the internal innovations mm-hmm. that you don't see that in the, in the footwear or apparel industry. Mm-hmm. As much as possible, as much as that, yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that I've never heard. I've heard more the argument: "Oh, consumer is not going to care. I'll sign off on this." Right, right. And then we would have to go back and say, mm, "Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will," uh, because we've mm-hmm. had this situation mm-hmm. already happen a couple of days ago mm-hmm. or a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and so so this was more the argument that was coming. Or 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 we have our standards are too high. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that is magic, the magic argument that would come back. Mm-hmm. And then I would always go back to and say, what standards are you actually talking? Because we have 350 test methods. Mm-hmm. So which ones are you talking about? Yeah. And what standards? Mm-hmm. Because for each test method, there are 10 or 15 different standards, depending on the type of product. Mm-hmm. So when you say our standards are too high, like you're throwing this against the wall to see if it's going to stick, mm-hmm. What exactly are you talking about here? <laughs> right. And I would usually be faced with a blank stare. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, do some research first, mm-hmm. and then let's regroup and have that conversation. Because I'm I'm more than happy to lower the standard mm-hmm. if we think it's not appropriate for that application. Right. But generally, it was the same. It's like, oh well, you know, mm-hmm. let's just get it signed off because mm-hmm. right, we're trying to get to market. Um, yeah. So uh, as I wrap up, I need to ask you something I probably should have asked at the very beginning. How did you end up in Vietnam? Because you got there before Adidas. Oh, I did mm-hmm. get there before Adidas. Mm-hmm. So I was so I was one of the last generation that had to do their military service in France mm-hmm. when I because I grew up in France mm-hmm. and went to engineering school in France. Mm-hmm. And so I did not want to do my regular military service. Mm-hmm. So one of the alternative solutions was to um, find a corporation position. Mm-hmm. And so what I did, I ended up finding a company and I created a position for myself. And then I applied as a, <clears throat> as a military um, person mm-hmm. uh, to that same position. I got myself matched and I eventually did about 10, 11 months for that company over in Vietnam, helping them with silk manufacturing. And that's how I got there. So I was detached from the ministry of the uh, it, uh, army mm-hmm. to the Ministry of the Industry. There was all these programs that they would do for graduates back then to try to utilize the manpower and workforce of the younger generation, mm-hmm. give them a first experience abroad. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got there. And there's a bunch of us that ended, a bunch of French guys that ended up over there at the same time. So made a ton of friends in the meantime. So that's amazing. And that's how I got there. So it, in, instead mm-hmm. of doing. Um, you know, push-ups and carrying a rifle over your head. You were manufacturing Correct. silk in Vietnam. I, exactly. <laughs> I was doing that's what I, exactly what I was doing. And I was like, great, that works just perfectly because I do not want to be in an army base. <laughs> I just did not want that at all. You've had a spirit of innovation yeah. your whole life. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I worked really hard to make sure that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Norbert, it was a lot of fun talking to you. I really appreciate you spending time with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It was it was a pleasure. Really liked it. Fortune's Path Podcast is a production of Fortune's Path, where we work with technology leaders to address the root causes that prevent rapid growth. Fractional product management, product leadership coaching, competitive intelligence. Find your genius with Fortune's Path. Special thanks to Norbert Teston for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are by my son, Ted Noser. Look for the Fortune's Path book from Advantage Books on fortunespath.com. 
I'm Tom Nozer. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's path.